this morning's sermon comes with a technology alert. So let me just go ahead and tell you about that right now. Um, a couple of years ago when I was looking for um, some kind of curriculum to use with the MYF and their Sunday school classes, I came across a series of um, videos by someone named Rob Bell. Rob Bell is a writer um, and also a speaker. And um, one of those videos in particular uh, called Rain I found particularly moving. Um, and as I was thinking about in communication with Anne a bit about what we were seeing in the text for this morning and thinking about this, this, uh, this dynamic that Sharon described of feeling forsaken but also knowing that we are held in the palm of God's hand um, this video came to mind, and so partway through the sermon, we get to watch a movie. Um, one of the things that I think Rob Bell talks about is that often when we feel furthest from God, or when it feels as though God is furthest from us, it's precisely in those moments that we are, in fact, being held most tightly by the Lord. Um, I confess that I often have a hard time believing that. So, Lord, help my unbelief. And Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. And no wonder they were exiles. They were no longer a people. They'd been overrun by a foreign enemy. Everything familiar was gone. Everything sacred had been destroyed. They were exiles, homeless, hopeless, forsaken, forgotten. God had warned them. They ought to have seen it coming. God certainly had, which made it worse, of course, because... God could have kept it from happening. I mean, isn't that what they'd always believed to be true about God, that God loved them, that God was all-powerful, all-seeing, all-knowing? Weren't these things inscribed on their arms, on their foreheads, on their doorposts? Hadn't they diligently taught them to their children? Their children, who once could recite the great prayer, Hear, O Israel, their children, who love to hear their parents tell over and over again the story of the great rescue from captivity. That they had been less than faithful, who could deny that? That they had failed to keep the law, failed to stay away from idols and other gods, failed to trust and obey. No one would argue against it. It was all true. But surely, surely there were some who remained faithful. Surely there were some who did not have it coming Surely there were some, even a small remnant, who kept the law and taught their children and did what was right according to the teachings of the ancestors. Surely there were some who did not deserve this punishment, whose hands were clean or at least as clean as human hands can ever be. And what about them? God saw destruction coming and did nothing to stop it. And now they too were lost, the wheat with the tares, the saints with the sinners, all lost, all ruined, no people to speak of, 
bowed down, beaten, exiles. Imagine having everything you counted on, everything you knew, everything you assumed to be true. Imagine having it all swept away, burned to the ground, made unrecognizable by the swords and torches and hard boots of your enemy. Your world literally turned upside down with no stone left unturned. Who wouldn't feel forsaken? Who wouldn't feel forgotten? Come to think of it, who hasn't felt that way? I know I have, and maybe you have too. I suspect we all know to a greater or lesser degree what it means to suffer, to suffer the consequences of our own decisions, our own behavior, and to suffer for no reason at all, out of the blue, through no apparent fault of our own. Sometimes we can tell the difference. Sometimes we can say, this is terrible, but it's my own fault. Sometimes we can't say anything at all. Sometimes we are so distraught that we simply cannot speak. Sometimes we can only say with the people of Zion, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Maybe we were taught to believe that such sorrow would never come our way, that God would protect us, that Jesus would guard us, that death had been swallowed up in victory and so no longer would have its way with us. Then calamity comes and the enemy strikes. Our world is overturned and nothing is the same and looks never to be that way again. And we wonder where God is. We wonder where God was. We wonder why God allowed this to happen. Why God did not prevent this from happening. Why something so terrible could happen to us. We feel like exiles. Far from home. Far from God. Alone. Forsaken, forgotten. We thought we were on solid ground, secure, protected, safe. But then the rains came. ago I was with my family and we were spending some time uh, in this cabin in the woods on the edge of this remote lake and I mean we were deep in the middle of nowhere 
And one morning, uh, my son Trace and I, we woke up and set out to take a walk around the lake. It was one of those mornings, like not a cloud in the sky, and the birds are singing, and my son Trace, he's about a little over a year old at the time. And so he's making all these little chirps and squawks that one-year-old boys make, and I had him in one of those hiking backpacks where he rode back here, so as I walk along, I can hear him making all his noises. And so we head out through the woods to walk around the lake. And it's just one of those, you ever have those moments, like if you could just freeze them? It's just so beautiful. And we get to the other side of the lake and we're exactly at the halfway point. We're the farthest possible point from the cabin and we're rounding the bend to head back and I look up and I notice clouds. And then it starts to rain. It always rains, doesn't it? It's interesting because the scriptures say all sorts of things about rain and storms. When Jesus is teaching about what it means to live like the fullness of life in his kingdom. When Jesus speaks of it, he speaks of two different people. He speaks of a person who builds their house on sand, someone who chooses to reject his teachings, and someone who builds their life, their house on rock, who chooses to build their life on Jesus' teachings. And, and then the metaphor he uses is that of a storm that comes, and the person who rejects his teachings and his truth, essentially the house built on sand just gets destroyed, but the house that's built on rock stands. So this idea, Jesus says, when the rains come, it's not like they might, they do. It rains in our lives a lot. At first, there's a drop here and a drop there, and so I put Trace's hood over his head. But what I didn't know was that he pulled it off. And so gradually, the drops, they get bigger and bigger, and they fall faster and faster. And in no time, it is pouring. I mean, the kind of, the kind of rain that just soaks, it plasters your hair against the, your head, and the kind that just drenches your clothing. And at first, Trace, the thunder and the lightning, he's okay, but as it picks up and it gets louder and louder, and the wind becomes more intense, and the trees start to shake, Trace becomes more and more agitated. I can feel him, like on my back, and it, at first he starts to whimper, and then he, he lets out kind of a little shout here and there, but in no time, Trace is shrieking at the top of his lungs. I mean, the wind is blowing, it's thunder and lightning, and we are just getting plastered with this heavy rain, and the trees are no longer providing any shelter. And Trace, just from like deep in his being, starts to yell and cry so loudly and with such passion and terror in his voice. It's interesting, because if you think like the word cry and you search the scriptures, you find this word comes up over and over again, like even the book of Psalms, just the book of Psalms. If you're like, start reading through, it speaks over and over and over again of crying, of crying out to God. And God says these amazing things, like he says, when you cry out to me, I listen. He even says, I cannot ignore the cry of somebody who's afflicted. It's like if I'm hurting, lost, soaking wet, scared, confused, God says, you cry out and I hear. God even says that when you cry, he's close to the brokenhearted. He's close to those who cry out and admit they're scared, lost, soaking wet, and confused. See, there is this false, twisted idea out there among religious people that somehow you got to have it all together to have a relationship with God. 
that like somehow God's only looking for people who have no problems and have it all nailed down and can put on like the happy face all the time and yet the scriptures speak directly against this kind of thinking I mean Jesus is even just straight ahead and he says come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden I mean the essence of salvation is crying out to God and admitting, I don't have it all together. It's admitting, I am lost, I am hurting, and this sinful nature that I carry around with me has really screwed things up for me. And God, if you don't show me the way home, if you don't fix things, if you don't step in, I am dying here. And this church, this kind of thinking is all throughout the scriptures. It's over and over again, God says to us, when you come to me, you come to me with all your junk, Come to me with your problems. Come to me all screwed up, all messed up. Let me take care of it. Jesus even sets out looking for people. He even says this. He says, I'm not looking for the healthy. I came for the sick. It's interesting if you think about the storm from Trace's perspective. For Trace, the storm is his reality. He sees nothing else the lightning and the thunder and the trees swaying and the raindrops and the water just dripping off him. It's all he knows. He sees no reality beyond this storm. What Trace doesn't realize is that as his dad, I would do anything to get him home. So at this point, Trace is shrieking at the top of his lungs in stereo right behind my head. And I stop and I kneel down and I take him out of the pack and I pull him close to my chest and I wrap my arms around him and I hold him so tightly up against my heart. And for the last mile, of our walk the entire time I bend over and I whisper into his ear over and over again I love you buddy we're gonna make it dad knows the way home we're gonna make it I love you buddy and over and over and over again through the storm, I carry him home, clutched tightly against my chest, whispering, I love you, buddy. We're gonna make it. Now imagine if like years later, Trace is in therapy or something, and he drags up this repressed memory of the walk. And he comes to me and he's like, Dad, What'd you let me go through that for? I got all this junk inside me. What did you, I thought you loved me. How could you have exposed me to something that horrible, that storm? I mean, why didn't you protect me? I would be crushed. Because for me, that walk was one of my deepest, most intimate memories of my life with my son. I wouldn't trade that experience for anything. Maybe you're bitter or you got all this anger inside because of some things you've been through, some storms in your life. 
and you're wondering if he really loved me, if God really was there, he wouldn't have let me go through that. And maybe God is saying, no, man, don't you understand? I got to hold you tight. And I got to remind you over and over again, I love you, buddy. As it says in the scriptures, the book of Deuteronomy chapter one, God's reminding his people of how good he's been to them. He says, remember, I carried you like a father carries a son. And now, may you, when you're soaking wet, lost, hurting, and confused, may you cry out and may the creator of the universe take you out of your path. May he hold you tight up against his chest. May he wrap his eternal loving arms around you and may you hear him whisper, I love you, buddy. We're gonna make it. Dad knows the way home. We're gonna make it. I love you. The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. That's what Zion said, and no wonder. But listen, God speaks. Can a woman forget her nursing child or show no compassion for the child of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. See, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Those hands, in our misery, we thought them raised against us or formed into fists or thrown up in despair or flung out in rejection, those hands. Those hands, they take us up and hold us, hold us in love. Right there, in that place where we felt furthest from God, in that place of loss and exile, that place where we felt most alone, most abandoned, most forsaken, forgotten, there God's hands take us up and hold us in love. Like a father protecting his baby from the storm, like a mother drawing her little one to her breast, those hands... But fathers sometimes fail to pick up their babies. And mothers sometimes do push their little ones away. But these hands, God's hands, they never, ever fail to move toward us in love, drawing us in, holding us tight, bringing us exiled ones home, not forsaken, not forgotten. Our names are written on the palms of God's hands not only written, but inscribed, a permanent mark which cannot be erased, cannot be washed away. Our names are inscribed on the palms of God's hands, not forsaken, not forgotten, not 
ever. Those hands, the same hands that Thomas demanded to see, scarred by nails, and all around those scars are names. The name of every last suffering one, every last exile, every last one who imagined herself to be forsaken, every last one who imagined himself to be forgotten. Written on the very flesh of God, written on the very flesh of God, our names, as close as we can possibly be, not forsaken, not forgotten. This is not easy to see. It's not easy to proclaim, especially when we're in the place of exile with the wreckage all around us, with the pain of our loss still fresh and biting as a wind from the north. It's not easy to hear such words from God, let alone from well-meaning friends and family members. And good news is not good unless we can hear it. Good news cannot be received if our hands are full of what we have lost. And so we wait and we grieve and we wonder and we ask hard questions. We tell the truth of our misery. We bear witness to our grief. We proclaim ourselves as forsaken, forgotten. But Lord willing, we are surrounded by a community which waits with us, which grieves with us, which asks hard questions with us, a community which listens to our sorrowful words and does not turn away, a community whose very presence offers a glimpse of the good news to come. Good news as old as time, good news that is patient in waiting, good news whose truth does not depend upon our ability to receive it, Good news that does not even depend upon our desire to hear it. Good news that does not insist that we prepare a place for it, that we clean up the debris, that we sweep up the ashes, that we tidy up ourselves and our circumstances. Good news which is constantly being spoken, patiently being spoken, awaiting, awaiting that moment when we can finally hear it. Someone has written about this text from Isaiah, and I quote, it is tempting for the preacher to look for a lesson in every text, to find instruction or guidance for the congregation, often to be sure that is the appropriate and responsible proclamation of the text in Christian worship. This reading, however, contains no instruction for the life of faith. The text is good news and requires only to be proclaimed. God intends to set the captive people free, to transform the hostile environment of the desert into a highway. God's love endures like the love of a mother for her baby. The only response is to tell that story and to sing a song of praise, accepting the gifts of God. End quote. Sisters and brothers, we are not forsaken. We are not forgotten. We are inscribed on the palms of God's own hands. This is God's promise. This is God's gift. And so we do sing. Hallelujah. 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 Amen.